Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, seafarers, mariners, and amphibians from beyond. You are listening to the Je Nicole pod series. The opinions presented in this series do not represent the official position of any government, organization, or entity. Welcome, everyone. I'm your host, Lucy, and today you are listening to Pod 2 from Je Nicole Pod and Pen, where we will be discussing historical and contemporary naval innovation. Today, I'm joined by Rear Admiral James Goldrick, RAN retired, who besides his successful career in the Navy, is a prolific author on naval history, strategy and maritime affairs. Welcome, Rear Admiral Goldrick, and thanks so much for joining us on Je Nicole. Thank you for inviting me, Lucy. So just just to kick it off today, um, our last podcast, we talked about our namesake, the Je Nicole, and the innovations it used to attempt to rise to the threat of British supremacy of the sea. Now, in this period in the late 19th century towards the 20th century, we saw a massive wave of innovation. Now, Rira McGoldrick, did you want to take us through what you perceive to be the key innovations during this period? Well, I think the 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 key one, which really the Jeune Cole were basing practically everything, was the invention of the locomotive torpedo. And that's really important because that introduced for the first time really ever in naval warfare what I could call tactical asymmetry. In other words, it was possible uh, systematically for small ships to sink big ships, which really had never been the case before. You know, been amazing actions and fire ships and all sorts of things like that. And the Genecole really seized on this idea that they could um, achieve asymmetry, that they're using torpedo-carrying craft, which, of course, they you know, thought of as being much smaller and cheaper than battleships, uh, could pose such a threat that heavy ships could not approach the uh, French coast, which then made the French coast safe. And if you, you, you then use the torpedo craft properly, their argument was it could they could threaten both British commerce and indeed themselves go and threaten the uh, British coasts. The commerce really was a reversion and a new form of the old form of asymmetry in naval warfare, which is operational asymmetry, or indeed strategic asymmetry, however you you wish to put it in a box. In other words, France had frequently had this problem of not being able to overcome the British superiority in main battle fleets, um, therefore turned from seeking uh, fleet action and the destruction of the British fleet to trying to attrite the British uh, through commerce warfare. Um, And that had been the guerre de course, uh, the war of commerce, as as the French had termed it, had, had been an old standby. And the Jeune Cole seized upon this in a new way. Um, and they had one key reason for doing it, which is a realisation that the game had changed. In other words, even by the late 19th century, the United Kingdom in particular had moved to a just-in-time economy. And that just-in-time included feeding the British people. Uh, Britain could no longer feed itself. Um, so it now became potentially possible pose an existential threat by interrupting the shipping uh, movements to a country like the United Kingdom. And indeed, the Jeune Cole had this idea that 
even if they threatened it, if they started to do it, there would be such a panic um, because of the fear of only having a few weeks' food in Britain and, uh, you know, loss of control of the population, uh, riots, um, breakdown of, go of government, that they felt that this posed a tremendous threat and one that Britain really um, would, fear, would fear greatly. There are some interesting ideas in it, but what I would say is that the package had such problems because they hadn't, you know, it was very much, I think, based on the inspiration of a couple of early thinkers um, who didn't completely understand the technology and also didn't understand the operational problems they were actually creating with their new ideas. Uh, for example, and it was largely because a couple of the torpedo boats had weathered a storm, there was this genuine idea that boats of 33 metres in length with a tiny crew with Remember, there's no long-range communications at sea at that point. Um, they would also have had tremendous trouble even knowing where they were, you know, would actually be ranging the ranging the, the seas, going well out into the Mediterranean and indeed into the Atlantic. And, of course, that didn't work, <laughs> and it was never going to work. And to um, speak broadly about that as well, like the you bring up the long-range communication, what are some of the other innovations, not just from the French, that were um, being developed during that time, potentially in response to Junicole, but also afterwards? Did you want to talk us through um, a couple of key ones? Indeed, because the, 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 the key one where a lot of the ideas the Junicole actually broke down were the first response to a symmetry and really the, the first response to what has been this offence versus defence sort of war uh, ever since at sea, which was the invention of the quick-firing gun, which was breech-loading guns with um, breech mechanisms that allowed uh, quite heavy weapons to fire multiple rounds per, per minute. Before you have the quick-firing gun, there is a point where you know British um, politicians and British uh, admirals are even thinking there will be no more battleships. Once you have quick-firing gun, the whole thing changes. And the response is that the... Um, so effective that torpedo boats are at great risk during the day, certainly in, in, in good weather. And I think at this stage, you know, the, the early period of the Genecole, uh, you know, the 1880s and so on, these are, the two, these are the two developments that are meeting each other that are most critical. Of course, as you go on, you know, it's hardly surprising that the French um, are the first really to be seriously interested in the submarine in a practical sense. Uh, so the Gymnot, uh, which is the um, French prototype boat, it you know it is hardly surprising. But that's later on, towards the end of the century, and indeed it's towards the end of the century that other things are starting to come in. Uh, wireless um, begins to be developed, and that's very much the first decade of the 20th century. Um, efficient diesel engines start to get developed, um, so submarines don't need petrol um, uh, engines on the surface. The periscope gets invented. People tend to forget that the periscope was actually invented after the submarine. Yeah, it's quite a big one, isn't it? It is. I mean, you know, because, of course, if you're in a submarine and you don't have a periscope, you actually have to come up. And then, of course, there are things like the gyroscope, uh, which is really important, of course, and the gyroscope becomes extremely important for torpedoes because the gyroscope gives you directional stability, uh, which meant that you can... Before you have the gyroscope, a torpedo's effective range is a few hundred yards. Once you have the gyroscope, and also you have what are called heater engines, which preheat the fuel and 
greatly improve the efficiency of torpedoes, then you get torpedo range going out 1,000 yards, 2,000, 4,000, 6,000, and so on progressively in the years leading up to the First World War. And at the same time as that, you have a gunnery revolution, which starts at the end of the 19th century. Um, and that results in the development of really the first high-order predictive analog computers. The Demerit was the first sort of um, uh, instrument that uh, really allowed you to, to predict a firing, a predict the enemy's course based on uh, spotting, you know, information, visual information. So you you put it into the machine and, and it came out. But what really happens quite fast after that is that um, you get the progressive development of these electromechanical computers, which are capable of predicting from the basis of a, a moving platform with information coming into the moving platform, predicting where in future space the moving target will be. That, that involves quite a lot of mathematics and therefore involves quite sophisticated computers, um, highly complex. Which you can't do quickly in the heat of battle without. So that's why this invention was so groundbreaking, I guess. Absolutely. But it's, it's also incredibly complex um, because there's a whole raft of other factors that start to come in. For instance, um, all the variables of ballistics. Uh, if you're firing at very long ranges, um, not in the performance of the shells really important, but the propellant, you know, um, what's the quality of the propellant? How sure can you be the, the, that the propellant will, you know, actually burn and, you know, explode in, in a reliable way? What is the wind at the various levels of the atmosphere through, through which the shell's going to pass? And so on and so on. And, of course, before radar, how do you actually estimate range? Well, you use visual range finders. The longer the range, the wider the base of the rangefinder needs to be. But the more problems you have with alignment and vibration and optics and things. Um, and then, of course, how do you estimate somebody's course? Well, you can do it by taking all these bearings and ranges and plotting it and predicting it. Um, but that creates errors. And if you're trying to do it by eye, it's there's about a 15 to 20 degree error normally. Yeah, not exactly what you want. No. No, there are all these problems, um, and and it is an incredibly complex process. Um, but they're having to do it because if they don't do it, then the torpedo gets the advantage. Yeah, that's right. It's a necessary uh, innovation. I actually want to draw it back to I actually read in one of your articles, and I'm going to quote you here, that there were many prophets of the new technology whose predictions were revolutionary and often prescient but did not reflect the realities of the day. And obviously I'm, I'm referring to the Jeune Nicole. More generally, even about some of the insights you're talking about with gunnery, et cetera, what are your thoughts on the hindsight bias of personalities when it comes to innovation? So that is when history at times looks back on historical figures with rose-coloured glasses at the cost of an accurate representation. If I was going to wax lyrical, I'd say it's kind of when a myth becomes greater than the actual feat in itself. It's a real problem, um, and, and it works in two directions. Um, the first one is I often joke that air power theory in particular has a problem, that science fiction was invented before the heavier-than-air aeroplane. And it's not, you know, I'm actually quite serious because if you think about the War of the Worlds and all sorts of other books that are coming out, you know, well before World War I, they're predicting this, you know, air power being able to do all these amazing things. And the trouble is people 
saw the vision of things like air power and see the vision of potential technology, but often, and I think this was the Jernay Coles problem, haven't worked out all the in-between bits. Uh, for instance, with aeroplanes, um, a compass that worked in the air was not developed until well on into World War One. Yeah, that's surprising, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it is. I mean, it's it's this sort of thing. It seems surprising, but it's these all these sort of problems that it's only once you get to them that you start to realise that you've got them. Yeah, they're like practical, technical problems that arise that that go hand in hand with developing technologies. Yeah. And, and and it's also the, the, the other thing is with hindsight, the problem is, and again, people look at it in hindsight, quite often, if you look at how people got into a situation, got got a developed a particular capability, took doctrine from it and do all sorts of other things, um, at the information they had available at the time, it was probably quite reasonable, but it turned out in retrospect to have been wrong. And yes, you have to be very careful not to not to use hindsight to judge people on the basis of information or knowledge they didn't have. Yeah, that's that's true. And and I agree with you that ultimately, um, speaking generally about the Jean Nicole, that it failed to achieve its strategic objective because it assumed that uh, in these technological developments, in and of itself, it would lead to a permanent result. But as we know, and we've just been discussing each challenge that a new innovation presents. Um, arises a counter innovation that answers the challenge. I know that on our previous episode, our guest Jeff Till noted that despite that, the Jeune Nicole still created a problem that the British had to think about, although they may have been able to answer that problem relatively quickly. But noting that at this time, um, at the turn of the century, people were overwhelmed with the level of innovation occurring. Do you think that there is a risk for contemporary fighting forces to make the same error of being singularly focused on one adversary and or get singularly focused on one innovation? I think there is a danger of that. I worry a little, for instance, currently about the, the fixation on autonomous vehicles for their own sake. Um, although I, ha- I think they've got tremendous potential. I'm really interested and I do think, you know, they're a very big part of the future. Um, but I do get the, you know, I was just seeing a tweet by one commentator who was thinking, oh, it'll be wonderful when the army can have autonomous surface, you know, vehicles at sea. I'm thinking, okay, why? <laughs> so, yes, it's this idea that it is going to cure your cure the problem where it won't. Um, my view is that things just keep getting more complex that, uh, and I have a joke that, you know, there's an old um satire historical satire which talks about the irish question and i often mention this in lectures and the the joke is that the irish the english never solved the irish question because every time the english found the answer the irish changed the question i like that and that's that's my metaphor for how things work you have to keep working at it you have to keep looking at things um you know, I mean, for instance, again, I, I was uh, being critical, of raising a concern about these large autonomous vessels that the United States Navy are proposing. And I'm sort of saying, well, actually, wouldn't it be better to have a small crew? Because actually, that would be more flexible. And indeed, but somebody and then I said, and I could actually envisage the situation. I just almost did this off the top of my head, where a submarine could actually do what's, you know, the modern version, what's called a gun action surface which is basically in the old days where a submarine used to be between not being able to see anything above the water and first round away from the gun was 30 seconds. The equivalent of gun action surface and basically getting special force, you know, getting a boarding party on board the autonomous vessel. 
somebody just poop, you know, somebody did something sort of slightly disdainful, you know, I was being old fashioned. A week later, there is a demonstration the British have done of boarding using jetpacks. Yeah, well, okay. So I was thinking, well, okay, marry that to a submarine doing a, a, a crash surface, flip open the hatch, jetpack out, and you could have a couple of people on board something that was, you know, 100 yards away, you know, within 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 a minute. And potentially one like low-grade, low-tech version of that that's currently in service is I've seen um, images on Twitter of the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps Navy with their semi-submersibles. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and in fact, I'm not critical of the way the Iranians approach their problem because actually in their situation – that's probably a, you know the best way they can do it because they've got very limited access to the the world's technological um, military uh, market. Um, they have quite a specific problem, and that's the way they try and answer it. And they've also got a bit of a terrain advantage, which is well suited to the types of platforms and operational art, I guess, that they use. Yes, yeah, yeah. Moving back to. Um, the Nicole generally. So I read in Arne Roxon's book on the Jeune Nicole, which he called the strategy of the week, both the name of the book and the strategy, uh, what we call in modern parlance asymmetric tactics, which you've just been talking about. But I also think of a slightly more modern example of naval battles at Guadalcanal. So it was between the Japanese and the American navies and the American navy had the technological advantage, but they lost all but one of the actual naval battles. And I read a paper from USNI that talked about it, and it was the Japanese Navy innovated by using long-range gunnery, torpedoes, but more importantly, a coherent uh, tactical doctrine for night operations that gave them the advantage over the US and demonstrated that technology alone does not decide the winner. To what extent do you think modern-day asymmetrical tactics like the Iranian example that we were talking about just before have been or will be successful in the future? And what do you think that would look like if we talk about some of the more popular areas of operation, such as the Middle East or the Indo-Pacific? Oh, uh, well, the Indo-Pacific's a big, uh, that's a big question. In terms of the Middle East and the Iranians, I think um, I, I can't sort of offer specifics about how you would deal with it. But what I would say is that I think they certainly are open to being dealt with systematically by the United States with prior thought prior exercise, prior training, and the pro proper use of assets. I mean, historically, uh, and I mean in the last you know, 20 to 30 years, um, air assets have been decisive against small craft because small craft find it very difficult to put up effective aimed anti-aircraft fire, um, you know, because of the whole prediction problem and all the rest. So I would imagine, you know, an air solution um, would probably be quite quite effective, Um one would keep your big surface platforms as far away as possible until you've cleared cleared the slate, um, and that's you know, that applies for anti-submarine warfare as well. But I think it's it's that bigger point that you're really getting to that you've raised. I think is that you need to examine your problem. You need to experiment in terms of gaming it and working out what the potential solutions are you may need to develop you know you may actually identify requirements for particular equipment systems or weapons and you need to you know work out what your doctrine is and then you need to train and as you train 
you also need to be changing your doctrine because you're going to discover things as you train that didn't work. I mean, what is quite clear with the American Navy um, in the Guadalcanal campaign is that they weren't particularly well trained for night fighting at the start. Um, and also the way radar, and of course radar is, you know, the radar's moving at incredible speed uh, in terms of its development and the way it was displayed, but they hadn't worked out the doctrine of radar and command, you know, com command and control in a radar environment and, and so on. And it really does get back to this question of um, training for it and preparing for it. Um, the Japanese, in fact, um, were better trained, but of course had far less ability in terms of renewal and um, rotation and the backup to be able to overcome it. Because what the Americans do do is they do identify where their failings are and they do innovate and they really improve their command and control. They improve their um, battle space management, you know, with the combat information center concept and the training and so on. They indeed set up as far forward as they can training units to actually get them into a position where they can utilize what is technology which properly used will give them the edge. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that, I think that highlights the, um, some of the key points. I just also want to ask you something else. So the, this period between, say, the 1850s up to 1914, just like the French Navy, the Royal Navy and all other navies are facing this technological uncertainty that we've been talking about. And arguably the same thing is kind of happening now with the rapid proliferation of long-range weapons, including hypersonics and, and ballistics and emerging fields of technology. How do you propose a modern Navy addresses the, the rate of technological advancement now? Do you think that is um, difficult? And, yeah, how do you think we should address it? Um. I think that the only way you can address it is by coordinated action uh, with countries with similar outlooks, similar interests, um, similar strategic needs um, uh, work together. I've been arguing for quite some time that while navies like the Australian Navy need to maintain uh, a multitude of capabilities because that's what that's what avoids getting caught you know when somebody does get at you asymmetrically but it also gives your government multiple options and of course as we know you know multiple capability navies it all fits together and it's uh, self-supporting but i think the problem of generating the intellectual capital required to keep in the forefront of every capability is practically impossible. Even the Americans are beginning to have real troubles, I think. And I think there's an argument for taking sort of alliance arrangements a step further, not to have navies providing niche capabilities, because I think that gets you back into being over-specialised and your own government doesn't have enough options for independent action, but for navies to develop at the higher level sort of niche expertise you know particular navies take on the lead in areas for um let's say one navy could be mine countermeasures um it would have the high level schools the experimentals the doctrine and so on and you'd put other navies would put people in yeah that's a great idea so it's um it's it's kind of links in perfectly it's avoiding what the Jeunicole did was by becoming by not having a balanced fleet by becoming specifically tied to one technology and one tactic 
but then also enhancing these uh, international um, partnerships with, you know, other navies and uh, countries that have the similar similar values, I guess, is what you're saying. Yes, yeah, very very much so. And, and if, I mean, a, a lot of it goes on already, and indeed NATO has its centres of excellence, but it's really taking it even a step further. Um and people and people say to me, well, that's that makes you you know vulnerable. I go, well, yes, you know, if you have a major falling out with a particular country, obviously you've there's a half life problem, but it's not about you know, for instance, your basic training schools or your normal training activity. This is about the really hard driving intellectual effort, um, which is incredibly difficult. I mean, you you know, and I know that in many ways, you know, we're an inch, uh, we're a mile wide and an inch thick about many areas um and and this is a way of really having deep expertise with all you know i mean everybody would have people there but you know each navy would have a division of of responsibility um to develop really deep expertise and do that experimentation and, and you know really play with things yeah, I think that's a really interesting idea. And I know when I'm thinking of just gen- generically, when I'm thinking of um, these ideas of innovation, I kind of break up the art of warfighting into three, or the practical application at least, as consisting of systems, operations and exercises, but enabled by people as a central factor in each. And I know, you know, General Patton said wars may be fought with weapons, but they are won by men and we'll add women into that to contemporise it. But what, do you, but what do you think are the fundamental factors that underpin good innovation in any of these areas like systems, training or operational art? What do you think are the things that we should be striving for? I know you've just mentioned one of them as becoming highly specialised, working with our partners to become highly specialised, what else would you have to add to that? I think it is actually finding ways of finding the time for people to actually focus on their profession, you know, this part of their profession, and discuss it, game it, practice it, you know, um, come back and forth um, and, and, and then go out and try things. I worry a little that um, we don't spend enough time actually thinking about that enough time thinking about and practicing that part of our profession um, so that we can really maximize the time that we spend at sea i think we need to find ways of engaging brains and getting people to be talking about these problems if necessary providing that you know secure classified environment where they can you know openly talk about it without you know the genuine risk of um you know, sensitive operational information getting out. And I think it needs to, you know, the earlier we can be doing it, the better. Um, and, of course, in the modern Navy, it's it's not just an officer's thing for obvious reasons. You know, it is something that the warfare branches and the, um, and the engineering branches who are providing the, you know, the kit. Because, of course, one of the points, and again, I've, I've, I've been um, making this point for some years, is much more of the job now is actually ensuring that this highly complex, clever equipment we've got, such as Aegis, is properly set up and is and is adjusted properly according to changes in the environment. So it's really this business of a lot of people being involved. Um, and I'm, I'm not quite sure any of our navies really, really do enough of that. Yeah, I really like your point about 
how there isn't so much of a demarcation between officers and sailors now. I know previously when I've been working on leadership, maybe leadership uh, topics, I also delved into that. And, you know, if we're talking about 18th, 19th century Navy, we're talking about the difference between the officer and the sailor was like social class and breeding and all those kinds of things. But now it's really a matter of preference in this day and age. And I think that although it's imperative to have a hierarchical structure for giving and undertaking orders, we're in a good place from my perspective, from the Australian perspective, where we can actually have that up and down communication to the benefit of the entire fighting force. You're actually right about that, but I, I would say it's the, the the key point actually is the even in the 19th century, even at the worst point of the class divisions, um, was it was actually about education. Once you actually create a situation where the educational basis is so much more similar, and indeed as we know there's you know sailors with PhDs and and so on, um, that's I think where you know this ability to break down. I mean, I think if if we ever do go completely one way or the other, I would actually see everybody in the Navy being an officer. I actually also noticed that I agree with your point on the education. The difference in education between officers and sailors is not that much these days, but even more so now in the information age, even those sailors or officers who don't have as much traditional education, they've been able to use a lot of the tools of being of the internet being connected to teach themselves very highly specialized technical skills which are of relevance to the navy i also think that's really impressive and sometimes that's um, a part of education which is overlooked just that organic self-taught education i also have one other question now that we were just talking about um, systems before we hop to education i know that many naval professionals often decry the acquisition process and the bureaucracy, which has been stated to never deliver capability quick enough for how fast it develops. Do you have any thoughts or comments on that challenge? Yeah, um, that's a really hard one. I think there's a tends to be too much of a confusion between the platform and the all the stuff you can put in it. And it's very interesting. The American Navy is now saying it's deliberately stepping back from being terribly experimental about the platforms because it's realised that that can create tremendous problems in 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 the product, but also it's actually about the systems and what you can generate. You know, and arguably, we are where we are with most with with ships. The sort of technological changes for something actually, the platform that goes to sea plus its hotel systems are evolutionary rather than revolutionary. But there's all these things going on which are revolutionary, and you do have to have an ability, I think, to be able to look at something, prototype, see it's got potential um, and proceed with it quickly. But that, but at the same time, you also need to understand, be able to create a sufficient quality in, that, in whatever you um, decide is the final equipment, uh, that it's going to be able to be used in service, it's going to be officer and sailor proof, it's going to be... Uh, something that can actually go to sea and work. And that's, you know, that's the sort of really difficult bit. But I do think it's this idea of fixing on what is the potential uh, area for most improvement and going for it and accepting that a lot of the other stuff has has passed the point of revolutionary change. I mean, for instance, just give you an instance, the, 
the speed record for a conventional hull warship is something like 80 years old. It's just really happened in such a condensed short period of time. We kind of think that it seems so long ago, but if you actually take a step back and look at it holistically, it's actually not that long ago at all. It's certainly, I mean, the the changes in my time um, have been profound, although the ships don't look that much different. Yes, no, they don't. But what's inside them? And, you know, and, and again, I, I mean, I, I remember seeing the revolution. I was uh, in a British ship on exchange with the first operational deployment of an American Aegis cruiser, the Ticonderoga, and we saw the world change. What that ship could do by comparison with what we could do uh, in terms of the battle space uh, was just extraordinary. And, of course, you know, things like that have been happening since. Well, thank you very much. Shriad McGoldrick for your insights on naval innovation and the Jeune Ecole. I found them extremely interesting and I'm sure our listeners will too. I especially like the part that you talked about with intellectual capital. That was extremely interesting. So now it's time to wrap up the core part of the podcast and head into the Sailors 3, which all of our podcasts will finish on. If you haven't listened to our last episode, by way of introduction, the Sailors 3 is a maritime variant of the Army's Soldiers 5 brief, where we ask all of our guests the same questions for you, our listeners, to get to know them and stimulate some discussion. So Rira McGoldrick is going to be asked three questions. The first one is your favourite or most remarkable in-service military platform can be historical or currently in service and the second one will be the most interesting emerging technology at any stage of development and our third question is our wild card for a prediction a recommended book or a tip so soldiers five is out sailors three is in rear admiral goldrick are you ready i am all right let's start with number one so your favorite remarkable in surface platform i think the landing ship dock the lsd the reason being that was the realisation that actually big ships should not go onto beaches, but it creates that ability to actually take a lot of smaller stuff around at quite high speed and deploy it. So it's sort of the, you know, this idea of the mothership concept. Indeed, it's the sort of thing the Jeune Cole was struggling to think about. And I genuinely think that, you know, that has a lot, that idea, and again, it's being talked about quite a lot in current situations, has a great deal of potential for taking unmanned vehicles and all these sort of things in sufficient numbers and of sufficient capability and deploying them to create a local a local battle space bubble. It was pretty good at the time. Okay, so number two, let's move to the most interesting emerging technology that can be at any stage of development. So we can go a little sci-fi here if you want, but it's up to you. What's your answer? I think it's actually the micro microsatellites. Um, you know, this idea that you might actually start to be able to achieve the um, really 100% coverage from low Earth orbits, thereby having, you know, very high fidelity of um, imagery or whatever sensor you've got. And you just have lots of these, you know, being put into the air, um, going around and basically together making up a picture. Uh, Whereas, you know, before... Uh, for a satellite to have uh, that ability to be able to look at things um, at any length of time, it's got to be very high in order to have the you know time overhead. And I think that will be one of the sort of package of surveillance technologies which I think will change things. Although one of the points I'd also make to people is I think fixed bases are much more of concern than moving platforms like ships are. 
And I continue to be astounded at the way there is no conversation about the vulnerability of air bases, ports and army bases to all sorts of uh, weaponry. When we go on and on about how vulnerable surface ships are, which are moving, you know, a kilometre, even if they're not trying a kilometre every two two minutes. Um, but nevertheless, this idea of pervasive surveillance, I think, is the really uh, critical part of the technology. As a host, I'm not supposed to play favourites, but I think that's my favourite answer so far for that question. I like that. Um, for, so for number three, it's the wild card. So you can make a prediction for the future of military operations or technologies. Recommend a book for all emerging maritime leaders to read or a tip for emerging maritime leaders. Which one are you going to pick? I'm going to cheat and have a book and, and a tip. Uh, the book is newly published. It's called British Naval Intelligence Through the 20th Century by Andrew Boyd. Uh, it was only published by Seaforth in the United Kingdom earlier this year. It's a remarkable book because the first time across the Royal, history of the Royal Navy in the 20th century, it puts intelligence in its place and basically tells you what happened and why. And I think for any modern naval officer, it's a great book to read because it does give you a systematic picture of naval warfare in a way that I don't think has been done as well by anybody else. The recommendation is learn to quality control information, learn to assess and find ways of teaching your people to assess information, to judge it critically. Um, you know, I mean, this is this whole thing about fake, fake news and all the rest. But I think to take up that earlier point you were making about, you know, this, uh, this self-learning and this ability is... I think both for ourselves, but also for the people we lead, it's actually finding ways to teach ourselves and them how to really um, find the quality information, assess it uh, and judge its value and then either reject it or use it. Yeah, I think that's a good point as well. And um, I am always trying to develop in that area. And one of the key reasons why I think this is a good initiative, although obviously I'm biased because I'm heavily involved in it, is because when we have junior sailors and officers volunteer with us to go through um, editorial pieces, they are made not to just look at an article, skim through it on their phone, say, oh, yeah, I've read it, and they've read the byline, the tagline, but they have to actively engage with it, critically think about the content when they go through the editorial process. So it's kind of we've kind of lured them in by forcing them to think critically because otherwise there's so much information out there. People um, are so good at speed reading now, but they're not actually thinking about what they're ingesting. So I really like that point. Well, thank you so much, Ria McGoldrick, for your time today here in Jenna Cole. Uh, we've really enjoyed having you, and I thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for listening to Jenna Cole Pod. Stay in contact with us via Jenna Cole underscore pod on Twitter or www.jenna Cole.com.